And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There are a lot of fine political writers in this country, but Tim Alberta is one of the very best. His book, American Carnage, is really the seminal work on the conversion of the Republican Party into a Donald Trump party. He covered the 2020 campaign for Politico, but he did it by reporting from the grassroots up in regular letters to Washington, which offered a faithful portrait of voters across the country. After the election, he joined the staff of The Atlantic, and for the last quarter, he's been a fellow at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics. We sat down earlier this week to talk about his own fascinating journey and the country he's chronicled so well. Here's that conversation. Tim Alberta, it is fantastic uh, to see you. You're a fellow at the Institute of Politics uh, this winter, and you've been a huge asset to them because you, my friend, are one of the most insightful journalists on the scene today, and that's why I was so eager to talk to you here uh, covering politics in this country. So thank you for both things. Well, David, thanks for having me. This is uh, pretty cool for me. I'm a longtime listener. I don't know if I'd say first-time caller. I guess first-time interview. <laughs> first-time first-time interviewee. However yeah, you would say that on uh, yeah, podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. One of the reasons that I so appreciate your uh, journalism and your reporting is that you um, you suspend judgment. I mean, you offer judgment after the fact, but you you obviously approach people without judgment and. Um, and some, somehow from the depths of your own experience, um, which is not uh, the typical story of, you know, Washington uh, political report. So I really wanted to delve into that story some before we delve into the story of where uh, the country uh, is at. And I want you to talk to me about your parents and your dad, um, because they took a a, a a big turn in their lives that probably affected yours in a in a big way. That's definitely fair to say. Uh, so, so my my folks uh, were high school sweethearts. Uh, grew up in New Jersey, and um, and they were sort of uh, regular people. My my mom actually ha- had an early interest in journalism. Uh, she worked uh, for a while for ABC Radio in New York. Uh, they both attended Rutgers University. And after graduation, she was working in New York for ABC Radio. And my dad was sort of a, a hotshot young banker and uh, was quite successful and was uh, uh, thinking about going to law school. And um, they neither of them had come from religious homes at all. And uh, in fact, my dad had come from uh, what you could, I think, fairly describe as as a pretty broken home. Um, a, a lot of uh, uh, j- just a, a lot of unpleasantness, a lot of violence, uh, bad marriage between his folks, and um, and very abruptly uh, in his uh, late twenties, uh, he uh, became a born again Christian. And um, and I mean, what precipitated that? You know, it was, it's a pretty interesting story, actually. He began, uh, as he would describe it, my, my dad is, uh, is gone now. He passed in the summer of 2019. Yeah. Sorry. And yeah. And, and, uh, and he, you know, he describes it as essentially just, 
this this feeling of sort of um of hopelessness in in his in his life and um even as and, he was successful he was on he was a guy who was on his way up everybody recognized that and yet he felt empty that's yeah that's exactly right he, uh, i i when i when i eulogized him i i read this poem um called richard Corey. I don't know if you're yeah, familiar with sure, that, David, but yeah, Simon and Garfunkel actually turned that into a song. Yes, yes, uh, that's right. And uh, and it was I, I read I shared that poem at his funeral because that was a, a poem that uh, my dad used to recite to us uh, quite a lot, and I think it reflected his life's journey. And, and for people listening who are not familiar, it's essentially the the story of uh, of an incredibly successful, impressive person who. Uh, felt sort of empty on the inside that, you know, an emptiness that no one else could see. And, and he winds up committing suicide. And, um, and so that was very much my dad's story. He, 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 as he tells it, even as the, uh, the, the world was sort of at his feet, uh, he felt a great amount of despair. And, um, and when a niece of his uh, asked him, uh, would you like to go to church with me this weekend, Uncle Richard? Which she would regularly pester him, ask him uh, if he'd like to go to church. He said yes, quite unexpectedly, and wound up uh, wound up falling under the tutelage of of the local minister there, and found himself sort of for the first time in his life uh, anchored to something and, and feeling as though he uh, was connected to something much much more important than himself and his own life. And he became a, a born yeah, again Christian. And not only a born-again Christian, but he became a minister himself. That's right. Uh, so very abruptly uh, changed plans and, and um, decided that he wanted to go to seminary. And, uh, and my mother, who was not uh, yet a Christian, was looking at him like, you've got to be kidding me. And I should mention, that David, that they had just had my oldest brother, Christopher, um, who they had named him Christopher before either of them uh, had come to Christ. But... Um, so they had a newborn at home, and they both had great careers, and he wanted to uh, enter the ministry, and um, and his family and her family, uh, my mother's family more notably, they thought that he lost his mind. I mean, legitimately, um, none of them could understand for a moment what he was what he was thinking and what he was doing, and um, so it was a very rough time for them. And uh, uh, suddenly, uh, as as my mother will tell the story. Uh, my dad, uh, came home from work one day and they'd been having, you know, a lot of tension in the, in their marriage, trying to figure out what was next. And she said, uh, guess what I did today? And he said, what did you do today? And she said, I prayed to accept Jesus today. And I think that you should enter the ministry. Uh, and, uh, as it turns out, a, um, uh, a group of, um, uh, from a local church had just been knocking doors in the neighborhood and had come by and had asked my mother if they could, you know, if they could come in and talk to her. And she said, sure, or whatever. So it actually had nothing to do with my dad, uh, funny enough. Um, so uh, a bit of serendipity there. And then the next thing you know, they were um, selling everything that they had and, and, uh, and moving uh, to, uh, to Philadelphia. So my dad could go to seminary. As I learned about this myself, as I was getting ready to chat with you, I was thinking to myself, how different would you be uh, if you had grown up in New Jersey and your dad was in finance and your mom was in media? And would you be a different person than you are now? You know, I think about that a lot. It's it's interesting, David. I um, and in fact, um, we can come back full circle to this. But I was just having a conversation the other day with my uh, new editor at the Atlantic about 
sort of my family and how um, really it wasn't until my dad's death that I met most of his family because uh, there was sort of a, a breakage in the family. And I really met them for the first time at his funeral. And, um, and uh, all of which is to say that, you know, I identify very much as a, as a small town Michigan kid, uh, very working class background. We didn't have money. Uh, you know, we, we um, uh, lived a, a pretty modest life. And yeah, I think my- Not my, a mega that, church, huh? No, well, you know, what's interesting is the, the church actually grew into something of a local, I mean, you wouldn't call it a mega church by any stretch, but um, a, a very successful church. He was asked to take over a new church that had been planted recently in, in a town called Brighton, which is where I grew up. And it was, a, it was just a small kind of new startup church. And uh, over the next 30 years as the pastor there, um, he and his uh, team grew it into a, a very big, successful church, uh, but it did not start that way. Um, and, and how, and so you grew up very much steeped in faith. Um, and what, what did that mean to you then? I mean, did you accept it? Did you walk away from it? You know, I, I note that you didn't become a pastor. I did uh, not. Yeah. I did not. Uh, and it's funny because, uh, you know, one thing my dad always would say is, um, there, there's, there's, there's no job on the planet uh, more important than being a minister, but uh, but there's no job that uh, is sort of more dangerous if you're not 100% invested in that life than to become a minister. Um, and and I should note on the former, you know, not not important as far as your worldly contributions, but as far as the um, the influence you can have over others and the the service that you can uh, contribute and um, and so, no, I, I was never quite on track to become a minister. I, I think I, uh, I think I'm a little bit too much of a of, of a troublemaker and a and a smartass, quite frankly. Yeah, which is <laughs> great for for a journalist. Yes, uh, I, I was going to say. When, when you began to think, yeah, I'd I'd love to be a reporter. I'd love to be a journalist. I'd like to write. Uh, how early was that something that was on your radar screen? You know, I would say in a very uh, in a very informal and uh, not terribly well-conceived way, it was on my radar in high school, primarily because uh, I, I love to read. And, you know, we woke up and came down to the breakfast table every morning, and there was a copy of the Detroit News, uh, often a copy of the Detroit Free Press as well. And my brothers and I would fight each other over it, and whoever got down there first would get the sports page. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I would often wind up with the Metro section. And, uh, I found, <laughs> and I found myself really interested in it uh, And while I would bide my time to get to the sports page. And so it was something that was a, just a part of my daily life, and I liked to read and write. But I didn't really like a whole lot else, David. I was a very bad student, uh, uh -huh. and I liked to party, and, and I didn't get good grades. And so it wasn't – it was quite a, quite a ways later when I actually thought to myself, well, maybe I could make a career out of this. Maybe I could actively pursue this as, as something uh, to, to, to do for a living. But it wasn't, it wasn't really until I was probably 20 years old. Now, when you if, your brother, if you had beaten your brothers downstairs and gotten to the sports section first, do you think you would have become a sports writer? So that was the plan. I, I really <laughs> wanted to be a sports writer. I mean, that was, you know, I, and I know you can relate to this, David, but that was, um, you know, when I 
when I could get my hands on that sports page and, and read it front to back and, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, everything, the box scores, the yeah, recaps, yeah, yeah. the columns, I mean, all of it, I just loved it. And, and really it was, the dream was, I can remember being 15, 16 years old and thinking, you know, what if I could be a baseball writer uh, and just be, be a beat writer, just travel with the team, uh, you know, write up every game. I just thought that that would be the greatest thing. And, uh, and that was for a long time to the, to the extent that I thought about journalism. Even when I got into journalism school at Michigan State, um, that was the plan, was to try and pursue baseball writing. Yeah, and that's what you studied at Michigan State. Yeah, that's right. So I actually started at a community college um, because, again, I didn't have the grades coming out of high school. I was uh, I was uh, a bit of a bit of a bit of a hellion and uh, um, just wasn't real serious about. I gave you know I gave my parents a pretty hard time, and of course I was the fourth, so and the last. So you know the last kid usually gets away with more stuff than the first kid, and I think I probably got away with too much. But um, so I went to a community college and and worked uh, a couple of jobs to save up some money and kind of get my life together. I was a janitor and I waited tables and, uh, and grew up a little bit. And then I transferred to Michigan state. Those, uh, community colleges are a, um, unrecognized gem in the American educational system. And, uh, um, there are a lot of stories like yours and a lot of people who are training for careers that are not necessarily college track careers but require technical training and skills it's important and uh, you're a uh, i'm glad that you lift that up that that was part of your experience um, huge part yeah uh so uh, i know that you had an internship at the wall street journal when you graduated from college i assume you wrote for the college paper and did those kinds of of things how'd you happen to happened into this journal internship in you Washington. Know, you know, David, with, uh, as with much of my career, uh, a lot of, a lot of good luck, uh, and, and some hard work too, but, and I'm not being, uh, you know, self-deprecating here, but just, you know, no, I take you at your word. I'm sure it was a lot of luck. <laughs> it was a lot of luck. Uh, so I actually, I actually didn't write for my school newspaper. Um, I, I just wasn't for, for a variety of reasons. I wasn't terribly drawn to it. Uh, I, I knew a lot of the kids who did write there cause I was in journalism school, but I, I just didn't really love it. Um, it seemed like a lot of rules and a lot of structure. What happened was I was, uh, entering my, uh, junior year and, um, and actually I think I was part of the way through my junior year. And one of the professors at the school at Michigan state, uh, named Eric Friedman. He came in to a class I was in and he gave a presentation about a program called the Capital News Service, where you mm. can take a semester yeah, sure. and work in Lansing right down the road uh, and cover the state house and get credits for it. And basically all of these small papers around Michigan that couldn't afford an AP wire, yeah. they subscribed to the Capital News Service. Yeah. And, and so, and I thought, well, that sounds kind of interesting. And I was not a political kid at all. Like, I, it just wasn't, you know, uh, at, my, at that point in my life, I didn't know a whole lot about campaign. Yeah, did you guys talk about politics much in your house? You know, we did to the extent that, like, um, you know, my, my dad was, uh, was very much involved in, um, in pro-life politics. Uh, uh -huh. so, so big on the abortion issue. Um, but other than that, not, and, and really, this was a more throwback, version of, of sort of evangelical activism, David, because it was like one part anti-abortion activism and one part like refugee resettlement, right? Like it was like, those, like those were sort of the big kind of animating forces. It was like feeding the poor 
and, you know, helping the less fortunate and raising money for like missionary things. And then domestically, it was like, you know, abortion and, and some same sex marriage probably mm-hmm. too. Um, but, but really there was much of much more of an emphasis on just sort of general morality as it would pertain to politics. So like the, the, the Clinton impeachment was really my first, as a kid, my first taste of sort of, you know, political awareness. But other than that, it just wasn't something, no, it wasn't a dinner table topic. It wasn't something that my brothers or, or, or I spent a whole lot of time engaging on. And, and, and I presume your folks were uh, supportive of the idea that he should be impeached for what happened. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, my folks were, especially my dad. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a very much a, which I teased him about all the way until, up, up until we lost him. I said, you know, um, listen, part of the reason I'm so incredibly critical of Donald Trump is because you drilled into my brain as a kid, (laughs) this idea that moral leadership was a prerequisite for political leadership. Right. Um, so yeah, that that's something I remember very clearly. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that and we, we can save that for as we move on here, but, um, you know, I wanted to ask your interpretation. I will ask your interpretation about, um, the sort of incongruity between the uh, you know this uh, blasphemous profane character Donald Trump and the lockstep support he has in the evangelical community that is really the core of his political base but let's let's put that off for a few minutes uh uh so you got so you got some clips from this news service That's right. and then you applied to the for the Wall Street Journal internship in Washington that's right. You know, I, yeah, so that was, uh, and it was good fortune on a number of fronts, David, because when I was covering the state house in Lansing, uh, Granholm was the governor and Republicans controlled the state house and they couldn't get anything done. So the government shut down quite a few times and, uh, it was a, there, there was a, a ton of interest in what was happening yeah. in Lansing. And I happened to sort of be in the middle of it. And, uh, I realized, uh, almost you, you, you know, you have these moments in any career where you ha- a light bulb goes off and you have sort of a moment of clarity. And for me, having taken all of these journalism classes, but having never really practiced much journalism, I sort of had this light bulb moment there as a 21-year-old covering the, the state house, thinking, you know, this journalism thing is actually much simpler than any of these professors are making it out to be. Basically, all I have to do is get these people to tell me stuff that they shouldn't be telling me, and then I have to turn around and write about it, right? <laughs> and I mean, it just, it kind of clicked. And, and suddenly I was breaking a lot of news. I was, I was pretty good at it, I realized. For the first time in my life, this was something that I really had a, had a knack for. And so I had all these clips and I bundled them together and, and mailed them out. And the next thing you know, I got a letter saying, hey, do you want to intern at the Wall Street Journal in Washington? And I'd, I'd never even been to Washington. I didn't know how I could afford it, how I could get out there. It was, it was, it was a lot of good luck. Yeah, well, probably being a pastor's kid uh, is helpful when you're trying to get people to confess stuff to you. <laughs> I suppose so that's true. That may, that may have been helpful. So when you went to the Journal, tell me about that experience and uh, how that summer helped, uh, helped further shape your, your, your trajectory. Yeah, it was, I got to tell you, I mean, to this day, I can remember getting off the foggy bottom metro my first day in Washington, D.C., and um, I'd never even gone there on like a school trip or anything, so I'd never, I didn't know anybody there. I, uh, I packed up my Oldsmobile with, uh, with as much stuff as I could, uh, 
you know, uh, fit in there. And I rented a little room for 400 bucks a month. Uh, and I just, I tried to be a sponge and soak it all in. Yeah. But I was, I was way out of my league though. I mean, it, and it was, it's funny because some of the people who mentored me there, I still know and keep in touch with. And, you know, they're very diplomatic about it, but I just know for a fact, looking back, that I was not ready for that, that I did not belong. Um, you know, I think the, the intern they had the semester before me had been like the, the, the editor at like the Princeton paper. And the, the intern the semester after me was from Harvard. And I was this kid who transferred to Michigan State and, had, and barely had, you know, scraped together. Yeah, but Tim, clips, let me right? ask you something about that. Um, isn't that part of the problem? Oh, uh, yes. I mean, we've got a lot of people who cover politics and a lot of reporters in Washington um, who have these elite educations. And, you know, they tend to, those resumes tend to float to the top. But what they don't have is connection to the, the center of the country. They don't have connection to working class uh, America. I mean, isn't that part of the reason why we have such a, disconnect between what's going on out in the country and the way it gets reported yeah and and look so i think that's absolutely right and i could go chapter and verse on that and and we should talk a little bit more about it i i want to be clear i'm not being falsely self-critical when i talk about no no sort of how I, I, I believe that you were raw you were <laughs> raw but i also give credit to the journal for recognizing that hey maybe not everybody has to come from you know, the Columbia journalism program or, or Princeton or, or Yale or, or elite. And not everybody has to be the editor of the school uh, newspaper. And it's funny, David, because you're absolutely right. And um, I worked after Politico, uh, well, well, I'm fast forwarding a bit, but I did wind up working for years at the National Journal where yes. there was actually a, a policy when hiring summer interns, I mean, quite literally a policy where they all came from, from Ivy League schools. This was a, uh, this was sort of uh, the edict from on high. But the Wall Street Journal was a really incredible experience for me because it, it's, it spanned uh, the, the very twilight of Bush's presidency and then the beginning of Obama's presidency. And they had me do a little bit of everything. They have me, uh, I covered the Census Bureau. I covered Congress. Uh, I covered D.C. statehood. Um, I did a little bit of everything. And yeah, uh, that's great. I tried. It was basically a bad. It really, in the truest sense, it was a baptism by fire. They just sort of threw me into it. And I think the kid that walked out of there after six months was much better prepared for a potential career in journalism than the kid who had arrived there, who was very raw, very green. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You mentioned the, um, uh, the National Journal. You did a, a, a kind of, you did a stint at Politico, kind of an entry-level job there. You ended up at the National Journal. And you, uh, you covered Congress and, and politics, but Congress had a very uh, momentous uh, sort of hinge in our history uh, just uh, after the Tea Party uh, had taken over. I mean, you know, you've written this wonderful book, which I commend to everyone, American Carnage, uh, on the front lines of the Republican Civil War and the rise of President Trump. You know, t talk to me about that transition 
uh, and how your relationships with the leaders there uh, helped you see this transformation through their eyes, through Boehner's eyes, uh, ultimately Ryan's eyes, and um, and some of the people who were more institutionalists um, as this new wave of Republican was arriving. David, I really count this as another one of the big breaks uh, because when I went to the Hill, and I had sort of dabbled uh, off and on the Hill um, I, I was uh, for a while sort of doing different covering campaigns, writing newsletters. But really, when I went to the Hill full time, you're right. It was it was just after the big Tea Party wave had come crashing over Washington. And a lot of folks really weren't quite sure what to make of it. And what I really what I really tried to do, you know, I was initially assigned to uh, cover House leadership and which is, you know, which is a great gig. Uh, but as a new reporter, I found it much easier to sort of work my way from the bottom up. So kind of start with the rank and file members, try and get to know them. And then you sort of develop some more sourcing and you build those relationships and then you can kind of work your way into those, 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 uh, those smaller rooms. Right. And, uh, it was an incredibly fortuitous time to be taking that approach because the rank and file, all of these freshman lawmakers who had come in to Congress in 2010, they were trying to burn the building down. And, and uh, so what I wound up doing was, and, and I can't take credit for it in hindsight as being some master strategist, but what I wound up doing was I really was able to cover, cover Congress and cover the Republican Party in Congress uh, sort of the way that The Wire covers both the cops and the criminals. You're kind of, you, you know what I mean? You're, you're sort of capturing it from both sides. So one day I'd be, one day I'd be with, uh, with Cantor and Boehner and those guys and really absorbing everything in their orbit and understanding, you know, strategically how they were positioning themselves on a certain piece of legislation or a fight with the White House and how they were going to try and sell it to their conference. And then the next day I'd be with the renegades, with the Tea Party conservatives who were plotting how to how to uh, disrupt what the leadership yeah. was doing. And it was a it was a really fascinating reporting experience to sort yeah. of be capturing both sides of that in real time and watching them try to outmaneuver each other. You know, I just want to back up and, and ask you about uh, just based on your reporting and your experience. You know, my sense is that the eruption of the Tea Party uh, was, yes, in part, it was a reaction to Obama, uh, but this was a long time in the making, and you can go all the way back to Newt Gingrich uh, and his toppling of the House Republican establishment that believed the old time Republicans who believed in bipartisanship. And Gingrich's innovation was to say, these are our enemies. <laughs> we are going to kill them. You cannot be friends with them. They are not Americans. Uh, you know, I mean, he he, he began... Uh, this by the time John McCain ran for president in 2008 and Mitt Romney in 2012, they had to contort themselves to fit into what the Republican Party had already become. It seems to me it's more of a continuum that's been going on for some time, and it just burst into the open when you arrived there. That's exactly right, and, and you know I write about that a lot in the opening chapters of the book. That you sort of have to place these things in the context of. Um, that continuum you're describing, you're right. You could trace it back. I mean, hell, if you wanted to, you could trace it all the way back to, you know, the Birchers and, and to Goldwater. Yes, yeah. But, 
But, but in the modern era, David, what's so interesting is that uh, I think as the Bush presidency is winding down and the country is, is uh, war-weary and the economy starts to tank and then we elect a black man president, and suddenly this is like a powder keg, right? Uh, so, so you're right that it was a continuum. It was the trajectory was certainly pointing in one direction uh, over a period of time, but suddenly this confluence of events, uh, the, the the economic and the political and the cultural, just sort of all intersected in a way that um, I, I don't I, I don't think we have yet to fully grapple with no. how it changed our country at its core, right? That, that, that we are a fundamentally different country today than we were just 12 or 15 years ago. Yeah. And, and, the, and the Tea Party was one manifestation of that, uh, but there are others. And I think Trump in many ways was, was the ultimate manifestation of, of that. Um, and so, yeah, so here I am uh, on the ground level covering these guys and I think the instinct for a lot of the institutionalists around Washington, like a John Boehner, was to just sort of brush these folks aside and say, listen, you know, uh, I was a hellraiser when I came here, too. That's just sort of the way of the world. And once they're here for a little while and we put them in a headlock and kind of, you know, teach them the ropes and tell them how to get things done, then they kind of relax and they fall in line. And that's how party politics work. I don't think Boehner or his lieutenants, or the folks running the Republican National Committee, I don't think that they, to this day, have quite internalized uh, just what a sea change that era of politics was bound to represent. You, you talk about the confluence of things. We have, you know, we are going through such a rapid pace of change that technology is driving that um, has, has changed everything. And um, has not only created a sense of besiegement, but given the tools to demagogues to exploit that sense of besiegement mm -hmm. and continue that sense of, uh, uh, you know, sort of, uh, 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 you know, intensify that sense of besiegement, we're, we're going to get there. You, you uh, interestingly, you spent four years at the National Journal, uh, which was a uh, trusty kind of pillar of, you know, sort of mainstream kind of Washington liberal thought. Uh, I mean, it was straight journalism, but it was, a you know, David Bradley, pillar of the Washington community. You go to work for the National Review, the, uh, the journal that William Buckley founded in, in 1955 that became the voice of American conservatism. Uh, and tell me what, what went into that decision. Yeah, you know, it's pretty interesting. What happened was in the... Uh, fall of well, late summer of uh, of 2015, I had uh, transitioned off the hill pretty recently, and I was assigned to cover the 2016 presidential campaign. And I was uh, given a nice raise, and uh, and uh, was writing for National Journal Magazine quite a bit. I had written several cover stories for the magazine, and I was I felt like I had really made it and found my found my uh, my my spot in the organization. And um, very abruptly. Uh, the magazine shut down and the organization essentially went into uh, what could be generously described as a tailspin. Um, they, they, uh, they started buying out a lot of uh, big contracts. Um, so I was effectively left out in the cold uh, in the fall of 2015. And Eliana Johnson, who was running the National Review, the Washington office, we got together and she said, look, you know, 
NR has its blind spots, but I think they deserve credit where it's due here because they realize that there is so much interest in this presidential cycle, in this Republican primary, and that their readers don't just want to read a bunch of opinions on the website. They want to read reporting. And she said, look, like you're you are as good as anybody right now plugged in covering Republicans. You're super well sourced. Would you want to come work for us? And I had gotten to know her a little bit. We were friendly. And I had some big reservations. I, I really did because I had never worked in partisan media. I never saw myself working in partisan media. Um, I'm, not, I'm not an ideological person by nature. And I just really... You're pretty, I, you've, you've been pretty emphatic about that. Yeah. You know, listen, uh, to this day, like uh, people, if they meet my wife, like, you know, at a Washington cocktail party, um, you know, uh, like colleagues of mine will sort of grill her trying to get an answer. And she always laughs like, I, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't begin to tell you. I was pretty skeptical about going to work for National Review. But I went to New York and I sat down with Rich Lowry and, uh, and I told him exactly what I just told you. And I said, look, Rich, uh, you know, if I come to the, work for you guys, The editor of the National Review. Yeah, that's right. Rich Lowry, who's the editor of the National Review. I said, you know, Rich, I said, look, if, um, if I come to write for you guys, if I come to report for you guys, uh, it's, I'm going to write some things that are going to make conservatives look real bad. And uh, the first time anybody tries to pull any of my punches in a story, I, I'm going to quit. And I don't know if that's a position you want to put either of us in. And he really went above and beyond and said, no, no, at, listen, you're, you're coming on to be a reporter. That's what we want you to do. I went to work for the National Review in October of uh, 2015, and I worked there for the next 14 months. And during that time, uh, my coverage of Republicans uh, in the primary, and specifically of Trump, it was very critical, uh, very, uh, I mean, very clear-eyed, pulling no punches, and not only of, uh, of Republican politicians, but of major conservative donors. So all things told, it actually wound up being a very good experience there. And I never felt any pressure to write anything that was sort of ideologically tainted. Well, it was a hell of a perch from which to write about the Republican race. That's for sure. You started off that race saying that you thought that it would boil down to a race between Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz. When did you, you know, the, the, representing different poles of the uh, of the of the party rubio the more establishment wing of the party cruz the more emerging populist wing of the party when did it when did a light bulb go off and you say trump could run the table here and why so i i've i've got to be honest it was late i mean i i clung to a fairly conventional view of politics and of Republican politics for quite a ways in that race. And, and even, even saying that, David, I should note with an asterisk that uh, I was very high on Ted Cruz from the beginning because, uh, so when I say conventional view of politics, I guess I just meant that, you know, um, that somebody who didn't even belong to the party, like Donald Trump, this reality TV show, sort of cartoonish character, that he, there was no way that he was going to come in and convince all of these evangelical social conservative voters to vote for the guy who's been divorced three times and who lives in, you know, the, the gilded suite in Manhattan. Like it just, I couldn't see that working, but I could see somebody like a Ted Cruz uh, sort of disrupting the status quo and, and sort of waging war on the establishment. And it really wasn't until Trump won that New Hampshire primary going away where he beat the field by about 20 points. Uh, that was really the first night in covering the entire campaign where I sort of sat back at the hotel bar in Manchester late that night and thought, you know what, he's going to win. Uh, but it took a while for me to get there. So why were you wrong? 
I mean, and I don't mean you. I'm not saying that in an accusatory way because many, many, many people were wrong, including many Republican politicians. Uh, but what is it that allowed? Because you write late in that campaign, you, you know, you wrote uh, disapprovingly of uh, Trump's uh, Access Hollywood tape and. You said this was a legacy the Republican Party is going to have to live with if they, you know, embrace that, which they did and they have. Um, But as we said earlier, and this is probably the appropriate part to to, I mean, your dad uh, uh, supported Trump um, and was obviously a deeply moral person and was driven by that. So talk about this very complicated dynamic that. As I said earlier, this profane, uh, you know, um, uh, character um, in in no way the image of a of a person of faith or a church going person um, should become the hero of the uh, evangelical movement. Yeah. So there's a couple of answers to unpack there. I, I think the first one is, you know. What I got wrong, what I underestimated, was the degree to which, you know, despite having spent uh, the last few years covering all of these Republican politicians who were really uh, almost carrying themselves like anarchists, and you'd look at them and say, geez, they don't want to reform things, they just want to burn everything down, right? And there's a difference. Um, I guess I did underestimate the degree to which voters wanted to burn everything down. That that even, you know, even in my time uh, uh, talking with voters, uh, talking with friends, talking with family members who are very conservative, I had never picked up on an appetite to uh, just sort of, um, do, you know, to, to sort of slash and burn, and uh, and um, and that was new in 2016, you know, there, there was a difference. I, I've talked with other reporter friends of mine about this to make sure I'm not crazy when I've observed this, and they all agreed. There was a difference when you would talk to people at a Cruz rally versus people at a Trump rally, right? You'd meet a lot of voters who were pretty far to the right, but the people at a Cruz rally tended to be maybe a little bit more sort of um, ideological about it, maybe a little bit more intellectually engaged on certain issues, whether it be, you know, budget and deficits or immigration or healthcare, whatever it is. Uh, Whereas at the Trump rally, it was a lot of just sort of unharnessed anger and grievance and resentment. And, uh, you know, it's, it's tough to sort of put your finger on how that, how exactly uh, how someone can take those forces politically and, and mold them into a movement. But Trump did, and he did it at a scale that I didn't think was possible. So, so you know, did, did we think that he could, you know, get 10, 15, maybe even 20 percent of voters? Yes. But even as even as late in that race, David, as, as you know, February or early March of 2016, the, the knock on Trump was that he had a ceiling of 30 percent. Yeah. Until he didn't. Right. And, and, and the next thing you know, he's hitting 35. He's hitting 40. He started to hit 45 and, and 50 in a couple of those uh, primary states in the South. And, you know, what's interesting on the second part, when you ask about people like my dad. So, you know, my dad voted for John Kasich in the primary. Uh, my mother did, too. And um, and, and in fact, uh, f- quick, funny story. You'll appreciate this. 
Um, someone from their church, uh, there was a, a debate at the Fox Theater in Detroit, a Republican primary debate, and somebody from their church uh, had a, a spare set of tickets and asked my dad if he'd like to go uh, with my mom. And so they said, oh, sure, that, they've never done anything like that. That would be fun. So I was in town covering that debate, and I took them out uh, for dinner beforehand, and then uh, we parted ways. And that was the debate uh, where Donald Trump uh, quite famously boasted about the size of his genitals oh, from, yeah, the, yeah, from the yeah. stage. And of course, all I could think to myself was, you bastard, my mother is in that audience. How, like, <laughs> how, how dare you speak like that? And afterwards, uh, I talked to my dad and, and, you know, and I wrote my story. I think the headline from that story was like, Republican Party implodes in Motor City train wreck or something like that. And, um, and I talked to my dad afterwards and he was just beside himself, just it was sort of disgusted by the whole thing wondering, you know, he had told me before the debate that he was going to, he was leaning towards Kasich, uh, maybe Rubio. So anyway, all that to say, David, that for, I think for a lot of people who I've interviewed who sort of exist in that space, um, they didn't get to become Trump voters until that summer, uh, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe even that fall. And, and at that point, I think for a, a huge number of these folks, they had to sort of embrace a reality that or, or or a way of political thinking that they had long rejected, which was that everything is binary, that everything is relative, that uh, you can't afford to be idealistic in politics or moralistic in politics, that you have to look sort of uh, in, in a cold and clear eyed way at the choices in front of you and choose the one that is uh, going to do the least harm. And I, I don't think it's that mindset that's necessarily all that extraordinary, but it's the people who embrace that mindset. Uh, the, the very people who, as I said, sort of through the Clinton presidency and, and I think for many years preceding it through the years of the moral majority and the religious right, uh, the, the very people who were sort of on the front lines of advocating this sort of um, th- this idealistic approach to, to politics um, were now essentially surrendering and saying, yeah, you know what, never mind, uh, because the stakes are too high and we can't afford to be idealistic. So choice and judges and... Yes. Yeah. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You uh, went back uh, to Politico. You became a national political writer for Politico. And then in in 2019, I guess, uh, you uh, made the decision to move back to Michigan, I assume partly because your father was ill. But you took your your wife and your three kids, you you moved to uh, Michigan, and you covered the 2020 race from home, from Michigan. Um, And you, you wrote, uh, something called letter a letter to Washington to Washington. Uh, you know the New Yorker famously for years has had letter, the letter from Washington, and it, you very self consciously were saying, "I'm going to write about this race from the middle of this country, not from the coasts, and I'm going to spend time among people." What uh, first of all did it advantage you to be in Michigan? and not Washington in covering this race? And did it give you greater insight into this sense of alienation and besiegement that drew people to Trump? 
Yeah, it did. It, it really did. Um, and, and, you know, by, by way of background, David, we had, my wife and I, we had started thinking uh, a few years earlier about getting out of Washington. Uh, not, neither of us had ever really been enamored of D.C. Um, we just, we didn't feel like it was a great fit long term for our family and for our, our young kids. And, uh, and actually, when I was writing my book, uh, which came out in the, in the summer of 2019, um, when, when by the time it, we, I finished it and submitted it to the publisher, um, my wife and I sort of talked and said, uh, maybe this is our ticket out of town. You know, maybe, uh, the book comes out and then I get through 2020. I was under contract with Politico through the 2020 election. So our plan was to come back probably to Michigan after the 2020 election. And then my dad died 12 days after the book came out. And, uh, and suddenly we found ourselves in Michigan and thought, you know what? Uh, if we're going to move, maybe we should just move now. And that part of it, David, that sort of happened to coincide with a real anxiety that I had about the way that we, the media, and me personally, how were we going to cover this race in a way that was substantially different from the way we'd covered it in 2016? Because I really felt uh, a great deal of insecurity, for lack of a better term, after that 2016 result, how did we miss this thing? Why did we get it so wrong? Why don't we understand uh, the, 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 the behaviors politically and, and culturally of a lot of these voters? And so anyway, getting back to Michigan for me felt like a fresh start in, in a lot of ways. And, and, I, and I really pitched my bosses at Politico hard on this saying, guys, look, we wanna be a national publication. We wanna cover national politics. We should have a national presence, right? put me on the ground in my pickup truck and I will just drive. I will just talk to voters. I will cover these things from the ground up. It was absolutely the most rewarding experience of my life reporting, spending uh, that, that 12 months on the road um, from November of 2019 through November of 2020. I interviewed thousands of voters and just filled up notebook after notebook after notebook. And then I just started writing these dispatches in which Every single person quoted was just a voter, that no strategists, no pollsters, no party officials, no politicians. And the reception to it was absolutely incredible. I mean, I, people really engaged with it in a way that showed that there's a real hunger out there, I think, to understand what's happening in the country. You did a powerful piece uh, after the election, doubling back with some of those voters uh, yeah. as well. Um, but what is the rage about, what is the sense of besiegement about at its core? What is it that Trump has tapped into? Just explain very briefly what the core of the rage and, 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 and sense of resentment and besiegement that he's tapped into is, about, is all about. Is it, is it race? Is it class? Is it a sense that elites uh, operate for their own good and despair and disparage and neglect everybody else? What is it? Yes, yes, and yes. Uh, so I, I couldn't even hope to give you a, uh, a simple answer on that because, you know, we're talking about tens of millions of people, right? But I, I think that in my experience, I've divided it into probably roughly three things. And I think you probably touched on all of them. I, I think uh, there is a significant and larger than we're comfortable acknowledging uh, segment of this that has to do with race, uh, that has to do with when, when, when we say that people don't recognize their country anymore, that sentiment more than any other, I think, does come back to race, right? People look around and they think this is, you know, this is not 
this doesn't look like the neighborhood I grew up in. This doesn't look like the, the community I grew up in. Let me and ask you a sensitive a question part. about this one. Yeah. Uh, Sueda, your wife, is, I think, Indian-American? Yeah, that's right. Um, does, does that, how, how do, does her experience and your experience, does that play into this at all? And how have you processed all of this nativism that we've seen, given your own family? Yeah, look, uh, so I, I grew up in this small white bread town in the Midwest, right? And uh, the first time I ever brought my then girlfriend back to uh, meet my friends, meet my parents, um, a couple of my friends and I joked that you would have thought that there was a Bengal tiger walking through town. Like every, <laughs> I mean, people were just snapping their heads. I mean, it's like, and, and yeah, I mean, that that is a big part of uh, my thinking about this country. Um you know, her, her parents lived sort of the quintessential uh, Indian American dream where uh, they came here without a dime in their pocket. They opened up a little motel. They still run this little motel out in rural Maryland. Um, and they're very, very modest folks. But uh, she and her brother both went on to earn uh, undergraduate degrees and graduate degrees. And uh, they will be obviously uh, much more successful than their parents' generation. And uh, but they also grew up in a small town in rural Maryland after 9-11 where people thought that they were, you know, Muslim extremists and, and didn't quite know what to make of them. And so, you know, it's something that she and I talk about a lot. Uh, and it's, you know, and, and as a dad raising biracial kids in a, in a country that is so consumed with, with race and, and identity, I think it's hard to escape uh, consciously or subconsciously in my own reporting the role that race and, uh, and and xenophobia and uh, sort of nativism in general play in informing the electorate. And obviously, you know, when you 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 take this all the way back to oh wait, David. I mean, we talked when I was writing the book about yes. about McCain and uh, and not just the famous moment at the rally in Minnesota where he rebuked the woman, but really throughout McCain's entire campaign, uh, he was dogged by immigration reform and his efforts with Ted Kennedy to try and uh, to try and reform the immigration system and how people felt like he was selling out America and that he was trying to change the racial complexion of America. And that was something that McCain, who was, a you know, uh, he'd been around, he'd seen a lot. He, he that was new to him. He felt like there was this really this surge of racial politics on the right uh, yeah, late in the Bush presidency in a way that he hadn't seen it before. And I think that that's obviously only intensified in the decade or so since. You wrote what was a seminal, I think, piece on Nikki Haley recently. It was your last piece, uh, perhaps your last piece for Politico. I wanted to ask you a few things about that, but I just want to segue from this. She obviously is an Indian American. Um, and did you have discussions with her that, I mean, I mean, obviously some of it's reflected in the piece. But did you bring your own perspective to that discussion with her? Do you think uh, the nativism of the Republican Party ultimately can she prevail uh, in a party like she's? Not, I mean, the, the conceit of the piece was she's doing quite a sophisticated dance, trying to figure out where to land on this Trump issue. And over the course of your piece, she took three different positions because the insurrection happened. But she's clearly running for president, as you said. Can she navigate this? Can you be an Indian American woman? and lead the ticket of a party that is so riven with nativism and uh, anti-immigration? If you want to be really honest, uh, probably not. Uh, I, I'd, be, I'd be 
I'd be quite surprised if she were able to surmount those forces, even stripping away, um, you know, the anger about her condemning Trump and, you know, the, the allegations of flip-flopping and not having a core, all of that stuff aside, which is it's politically problematic in its own right. But even setting those things aside, David, um, and I wrote about this in the piece, you know, there are pictures of her, for example, on the internet yes. of, pay, of of going on a pilgrimage yes. to this temple, this Sikh temple in India. And she's, yes. I mean, you look at those pictures and uh, you can just see how this plays, right? Uh, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't, like, I've, I've spent over a decade covering Republican politics. Um, I, I can already see in my mind's eye what those blog posts look like, what the smear campaigns look like uh, on the ground, mailers going out, calls going out, Facebook posts and Twitter posts and social media being, being sort of um, uh, just um, pervaded with, sort of ugly identity driven attacks on her that hurt that, you know, who is she really? Right. Can we, you know, what, what's up with this family? Her dad wears a turban. I think it's, I mean, listen, and her, her whole argument, David, is that, well, I overcame these forces in South Carolina. And if I can overcome them there uh, in a place with, with such a sordid racial history, like South Carolina has, then I can do it anywhere. Right. Um, but I do think that, you know, that, that uh, that notion fails to appreciate again just how dramatically things have changed even within the last four or five years right in other words that yes as we said earlier that there was this continuum and that none of this appeared overnight and that it was already tracking in a sort of a, an ugly direction but it got turbocharged when Donald Trump came down that golden escalator. And well, and look, let's. I mean, the the great uh, one great line of demarcation is that Nikki Haley was vehemently opposed to Donald Trump, and part of it was on this very basis yes. uh, that she opposed him, and then ended up having to, uh, uh, you know, to embrace his politics, uh, at least to coexist with it, and to uh, and she became a, a, a defender of his in in many ways. Um, uh, one one other question I want to ask you relative to your coverage of the 2020 race is this is a niche thing that's important to me as the father of a child, an adult child with disabilities. But you made quite a, na- a bit of news uh, by asking a question as a panelist on a national democratic debate about uh, about disability rights and the difficulties that people with disabilities have to get services and to 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 be given opportunities, work opportunities, and so on. I was so moved by that. Um, and I also discover that Sueda has devoted a lot of her life to working with people with autism and and young people who are dis, uh, have have those challenges and disadvantages. And I was wondering, I always wondered, what is it that prompted you to ask that question? You know, the very first uh, meeting we had uh, with the folks at PBS, who are our partners in that debate, it was uh, Judy Woodruff and uh, Yamiche Alcindor and Amna Nawaz were my three co-moderators. And then there's, you know, a handful of other executives and there were producers in the room. And we were going around uh, uh, sort of giving some of our very top tier ideas for like the really important questions. And... uh, and I said, look, um, I've got a couple of things that are really important to me and uh, really only one that I think is kind of non-negotiable because it's just an embarrassment that we 
don't talk about these things in presidential campaigns. And they said, well, what is it? And I said, well, I, I want to ask about people with disabilities and how we help integrate them into communities and into the workforce. Why was it so important to you? Well, for a number of reasons. Um, uh, first and foremost, uh, our oldest son, Abraham, is autistic. And, mm -hmm. um, and, it, uh, and uh, as you know, David, uh, there, there's just, uh, there's nothing that shapes you in, as an adult quite like uh, having a child with a disability. And, and it changes everything about you. It changes. It defines your life. It really does. It really I mean, does. It, it, from, from, from the inside out, it, it changes your whole world. Um, and so that was important to me. And, um, but I had also had uh, several uh, interactions with voters. Uh, and this is where, again, uh, sort of covering things from the ground up to sound like a broken record, it pays such dividends because you, you really get a perspective that's hard to get otherwise. And, and so I had actually met in the course of my travels quite a few parents who would talk to me about uh, their challenges and about how the, it seemed like the government was completely indifferent to uh, what it, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the obstacles that they faced uh, just on a daily basis in, in, in trying to make it work. And, um, and so it just felt to me like, listen, there are a lot of, you know, it's a two hour debate. You can only fit in so many things. But it felt like in a lot of these debates, we spent some of those debates in 2020, some of those Democratic primary debates, we'd spend half of them talking about Medicare for all. There are ridiculous rituals of these things to try and trip people up and get them to commit to stuff that will be difficult for them later on. And, you know, it, it, I agree with Listen, I, I, I will forever be grateful to you for raising an issue that touches people across political lines, across yes. racial lines, across regional lines. This is a problem of humanity. We share this experience, as I mentioned, of having children who have had to fight through difficulties and disabilities. And that is something that, you know, when I meet someone who has had that experience, that's so much more important to me than uh, what party they belong to yes. or where they live or where they came from or what that that is a bond that is unbreakable. And, and that's what I mean by, you know, finding our common humanity there. We all share stories we all share pain, pain and, and love and loss and and happinesses. And, you know, boy, those conversations seem more important to me than any. Oh, man, 1000 percent. I mean, you are you are preaching at the choir, David. I mean, I I, um, I, I just I was uh, raised to believe that, um, you know, that everybody has a story, that, that everybody uh, is made in the image of God and that they have strengths and weaknesses and that they need uh, that they need to be treated with uh, with respect and, and generosity. And um, because, you know, you're right as a special needs dad, a beautiful little boy who has so many struggles in this world. Um, I want to make sure that uh, that that um, other parents uh, who are going through those things, uh, siblings who are going through those things, uh, maybe people themselves who, who are going through things that aren't outwardly visible, but who, who are, um, you know, saddled with uh, great emotional baggage or, or have um, struggles with mental health, as so many Americans do. I mean, these are just the things that you don't always know about. And it's so easy to prejudge and, and have preconceived opinions about individuals based on 
just this lowest common denominator question of, well, who did you vote for? Or what's your party registration? And boy, in, in a lot of ways, doesn't it seem like that's the least important thing that we should yeah. know about somebody? Yeah, yeah, w without question. My experience was when my, you know, when my daughter uh, w was ill at an early age and when it was clear that she was delayed and had struggles that other kids uh, didn't have, you know, she was my oldest. You know, you start off with these, your vision of what their life is going to be like. And it changes and suddenly all you want is for them to be happy and healthy and fulfilled uh, every day. And it might look different than what you uh, imagine. And I was, I'm wondering if you had the same experience. Boy, uh, I have. And, um, you know, I, I come from a family of, of athletes, of, of jocks, of... Uh, of guys who, you know, sort of are, are loud and cocky and like to mix it up a little bit. And, um, you know, my, my eldest son, Abraham is just, uh, the, the sweetest, gentlest little boy in the world. Uh, he's nonverbal, so he can't really communicate with us in many ways. Um, but he's, uh, he's got extraordinary gifts, uh, that, that uh, are are not easily discerned and, and are not apparent to to the naked eye, and, and so um, a big part of of my journey with him through his almost seven years now on this earth has been to adapt and adjust my not only sort of my expectations, um, but uh, sort of my my great hopes for him. Um, you know, he may never be some star athlete. He may never be uh, a, a Rhodes Scholar. But I know that he has great potential within him that looks very different than the potential that lives within my other children. And, um, and, and you know, our, our, our friend Ron Fournier, uh, my former colleague, wrote a great book on this subject. Yes, uh, yes. About yes, his son. Yes, who, is, who, who struggles with autism right. as well and triumphs. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and, you know, that's the thing. My... Uh, uh, my daughter is the most inspiring person that I know. She's yes. fought through incredible adversity. She's she's so smart in so many ways, uh, resilient, um, loving, uh, you know, brimming with kindness. Um, she's heroic, and um, you know, she's a she's a triumph uh, in ways that I never could have imagined when she was born. And uh, but I'm uh, you know. It is, a, as I said, a bond we share and uh, lots of people share across this country. And uh, uh, it's, it's made, she's made me, I, I hope, a better person. I think uh, kids have a way of doing that and, and, and particularly kids who have uh, to face great adversity and great challenges of their own. And uh, the one thing kids don't do, David, they don't feel bad for themselves. Uh, they they just they just power on and um, and they and they uh, they adapt and they adjust and they give it their all and uh, and and rarely uh, do you uh, do you know it's it for me that's that's been the the great adjustment of my life here is um, telling myself that uh, I am I am. Uh, not going to uh, wallow. I'm not going to um, be consumed with with self pity or why me. Because really, the the great question is why did is not you know why did this happen to me? It's thank God that this happened to me because I have a beautiful little boy here and and I was blessed with this opportunity to be his dad. 
The last thing I want to ask you about is just your decision to leave political reporting as a niche and go to the Atlantic where you've uh, uh, indicated that you're going to be writing about a whole range of subjects, maybe even sports, after living in this hothouse of American politics for 10 years and particularly for the last the last year as you've traveled the country. Tell me what, give me your report card on where we are as a, a democracy. What gives you hope? And, and and are there things that give you hope? Or uh, are you going to be writing more about sports and where you can be passionate and the results don't actually matter in the long term of people's <laughs> lives? You know, I think the the big takeaway for me, uh, David, in in recent months, thinking back on uh, this campaign and on the previous campaign, is that we are now so consumed. We we Americans, we voters, are so consumed with uh, the hyper national, uh, right? They used to say all politics are local, but really now all politics are national. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's a it's a real phenomenon when you think about how the you know the two things that really animate my thinking, my reporting are these ideas of sort of institutional breakdown and the, and the loss of confidence in American institutions, and then sort of right next to that is this idea of the breakdown of communities uh, and and how I, I think on that score, particularly, David, I've been so struck by the stories I'll hear when I go to smaller towns and I'll talk with people. And I've heard this time and time again, how in a lot of these places, um, they don't have the physical gathering spaces that or the physical gathering rituals that they once had. So there, there's no longer a Lions Club or a VFW or a Knights of Columbus Hall. Uh, the, the, the hardware store where people used to hang around and drink coffee is closed, right? And what has taken its place in many instances are Facebook groups representing the community. Uh, so there might be, you know, 5,000 or 7,000 members who live in the area who have joined this Facebook group. But the posts that get the most engagement in those groups are about what Tucker Carlson said on Fox News last night, or some meme that's making the rounds, spreading disinformation about some policy or, or some executive order or whatever. And the point is that even in these virtual communities, you have a total hollowing out of the things that actually make a community work, like a, a shared identity, a common purpose. They're not talking about fixing the street lamps or there's a grand opening at this new store. We should go check it out and help these mom and pop business owners. It's it's these sort of big national issues that are so easily demagogued and so easily you know misinformed. So that's something that I've spent a lot of time over the last 18 months thinking about. And for me, I think with this election in the rear view, it's really an opportunity to go upstream from politics and think about those communities, think about sort of the fraying social fabric in America. I think you have a real crisis of confidence in this country that spans party lines and and transcends any ideological divides otherwise. And so I think before we can try and tackle the problems of partisanship and, 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 you know, ideological tribalism, we have to go upstream a little bit and try and think first and foremost about why are we so divided in the first place and how, yeah. do, we, how do we begin to heal some of those divides? So, Tim, you spoke about your dad and you obviously, he, he had uh, views on Trump. Those views have divided a lot of families. It didn't divide yours, though. You, you revered 
your dad and uh, you guys remain close uh, despite whatever differences you might have had on politics or his unhappiness with things that you may have written. Yeah, that's right, David. And I think that that's the, the most important point here uh, is that, um, you know, our relationship was not defined in any way, shape or form by politics. Uh, you know, my dad was my hero and, and he was the best best man I ever knew. And he was just a great role model uh, for me in so many ways. And, um, you know, our disagreements over politics were were respectful and uh and i really tried to understand where he was coming from and he and he did the same and um you know at the end of the day uh, our relationship was uh was as a as a father and son who who loved each other and uh, and respected each other and you know in in a lot of ways um as simple as it may sound i feel like maybe that's a big part of what's missing in in this in this current political environment is that too many relationships now are being defined by those political yeah. disagreements. Yeah, no, it's 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 tribal, and you know the question is, can we find the humanity in each other, and instead of caricaturing each other, uh, or or allowing you know differences over politics to become. Uh, disqualifying and uh, there are a lot of forces pushing against that but that's the answer in the end of the day um it, you know we we all <laughs> we share a common humanity uh and uh, we need to find that again i think that's right i mean at the end of the day if if uh if you can find it in yourself to give people the benefit of the doubt and be uh, a little bit more empathetic and and try to sort of put yourself in their shoes and understand where they're coming from doesn't mean you're ever going to agree with them even but uh boy it goes a long way toward toward just uh establishing some some goodwill and um and and yeah uh that, that seems to be missing right now and it's again as reductive as it may sound uh, maybe that's how we start to rebuild this thing well listen I can't wait to see what you do. I'm really such an admirer of yours. Uh, you 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 write with uh, unflinching honesty, and uh, and great poetry. So um, I, I'm really looking forward to what you do next, and grateful for your stay at the Institute of Politics, uh, and and always happy to chat with you. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files. Brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.